This is Science Drives and Wellness Steers, Season 2. I'm your host, Allie. When I was in school, the most unhelpful and frequent thing I was told was she'd do so great if she just focused. The thing I never heard was how to focus. So I've dedicated my career to helping parents and educators do better. Moving from just pay attention to let me teach you how to pay attention. Let me teach you how to harness the superpowers of your brain. I've been the clinical director and therapist for Magnificent Minds for over a decade and have been supporting teachers, parents, and therapists of neurodivergent kiddos for even longer. Professionally, I'm admittedly an eclectic mix with formal training in counseling psychology and behavioral sciences. I don't fit neatly into a box, which I guess is something I have in common with the spectacularly unique kiddos I support. I combine my love of science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and find myself at the midpoint of behavioral science and mental health, looking through the lens of neurodiversity. I'm a hippie at heart, avoiding pseudoscience, gluten, and ableism. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who is not afraid to have hard conversations. I'm a sometimes all over the place, not always put together mom of three, entrepreneur, and a wife who was voted most likely to speak out of turn in just about every year of elementary school, which surprises no one who knows me. You can look up my business at magnificentminds.ca or do a full social media stalking on Instagram at magminds, on TikTok at therapymagminds, on my blog, of course in my podcast, or even sign up to receive monthly updates via my newsletter. But don't worry, spam isn't my jam. Thanks for taking a bit of time and joining my community. I look forward to going on this journey with you. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but did you know that you can grab resources I've created for supporting development, behavior, and mental health, and even completely downloadable training programs by heading to my website? Head to magnificentminds.ca and click Parent Corner. There you can check out downloadable resources and even register for virtual masterclasses like Parenting and Autism or Parenting and ADHD. All right, now that I'm certain you're not missing out on anything, let's hop back into this episode. Hello, welcome to another episode. Today we are diving into a highly requested topic and that is sensory defensive parenting. Guys, when I tell you that I was overwhelmed multiple times by the number of people that identified with the fact that parents can become so sensory overwhelmed. When I tell you that I went viral on TikTok almost five times with videos that reflected sensory overwhelm in some capacity for parents. Like guys, the community was losing it. And when I tell you that I found so much comfort in knowing that I am not alone in my, you know, tendency to become sensory overloaded, boy, did I find some serious, you know, a serious virtual village. And and when that happened and I had, I think I had, you know, almost hundreds of thousands of folks liking and commenting on these TikTok videos where basically parents were saying, oh my God, how did I not know that sensory defensiveness is a thing? Some people were saying, how did I go my entire life just thinking that I had a short temper or thinking that, you know, I was a bad mom or a bad dad or whatever it, you know, was all because of sensory overwhelm. So 
let's rewind a little bit. What is sensory defensiveness? So sensory defensiveness is essentially as it sounds, defensiveness or let's say sensitivity to sensory input. So, you know, back to kindergarten, we all know the five senses, right? So we have, you know, our sight, our smell, our taste, you know, we have hearing and we have touch. So these are our senses. Some people really like sensory input. They're like total sensory seekers. Other people are a little avoidant of sensory input or at least some kinds of sensory input. A lot of us know this about our kids, right? We, you know, we can identify in our families, you know, of our kids, which one tends to be more of a sensory seeker, tend to take risks when it comes to trying new experiences, whether it be, you know, new foods, new textures, that kind of thing, or even, you know, high impact play at the playground, or, you know, the kiddo in our family that's a little more reluctant that, you know, maybe doesn't like swings because it's a lot of movement, or, you know, maybe doesn't like tight hugs, or maybe doesn't like particular foods that are overly crunchy. Or perhaps, you know, always responded a certain way when a fire engine drove by and the sirens were loud. So as parents, the idea of sensory preferences, or more specifically, that there might be a sensory defensiveness or sensitivity, that makes sense to us when we think about our kids. So I think when I posted this TikTok video, I really was just you know, acknowledging something that I sort of thought was common knowledge, which was that, well, of course, if our children can have sensory preferences and, you know, we could say right away, oh, you know, don't give, don't give that child that, they will eat that, it's too blank, it's too slimy, too wet, too whatever, oh, you know, don't give your daughter, my daughter that or your daughter that because, like, you know how she is, she only likes crunchy food whatever it is, or, you know, oh, you know, don't put that baby on the swing because, you know, that baby doesn't like that kind of thing, that kind of movement freaks him out or her out. So again, as parents, we readily make these kinds of assessments about our kids' needs. You know, oh, don't put them in that kind of situation. Oh, I would never take my kid to, you know, a carnival. He would hate it. It's too loud, too busy, too whatever. But we don't think about our own sensory preferences in this way. So again, I post this video on TikTok and I get this overwhelming response. Like I, I literally gained 50,000 uh, followers overnight because people were interacting with this video and the TikTok algorithm loves that and it pushed it out. And I found this virtual village of people who all were just like, oh man, how did I not know that sensory defensiveness was a thing, okay? So now that we know what sensory defensiveness is, okay, we know that we can spot it in our kids. We can say, oh, you know, even if it's not necessarily like, you know, specifically obvious, you know, we, we can with a little bit of analytical, you know, deduction or, you know, a little bit of thinking about it, we can think of if we had to classify our kiddos, if you have one kiddo, you're one kiddo, if you have multiple, classify all of them as either a sensory seeker, who like loves sensory input or an avoider, we could probably do it. And I will say as well, it's not necessarily as black and white as an individual, whether a kiddo or a grown up, being like a complete seeker in all situations or a complete avoider in all situations. I think, and this is why I think this resonated so deeply with the parents on TikTok. And I think it's that as grown ups, we've learned a lot of coping mechanisms for 
dealing with our sensory preferences. And whether or not we're an avoider or, you know, a seeker, we definitely know about our own preferences. So let's say we know certain fabrics that we really like. We know certain kinds of sheets that we would never in a million years buy because they feel a certain way to us. Um, all of these kinds of sensory preferences that we have that we just kind of assume and adopt and don't necessarily think about the why behind it. You know, we can probably all think back to our childhood and think of certain situations where we may have been engaging in particular behaviors because of sensory, you know, stimulation in the environment that we either really liked or really didn't like. So I post this video, like I said, on TikTok and it, and it goes wild and people are commenting that they are so relieved to know that sensory defensiveness is in fact an actual thing. And not only that it's a thing, but it's a thing that a lot of people relate to. So why was this like such an aha moment for parents? And I think part of it is that what tends to happen as parents as we are, regardless of whether we're seekers or avoiders, because I think all of us can, you know, boil over or reach our tipping point or whatever analogy you want to use when it comes to hitting like our maximum capacity for sensory input. And that's whether you're a seeker or an avoider. So all of us as parents receive all of this sensory input all day long, okay? So there's all of the sensory input at work. If we go to work at the grocery store, if we go to the grocery store, and not to mention just like at home. So now, right now, if you are listening to this episode live, we are in lockdown in Ontario. We are in full quarantine, full pandemic mode. And that in and of itself means that we are stuck at home in, you know, in our home with our kids, with a lot of things going on, we're, you know, energy levels are high because our kids are in virtual school. And even if you're listening to this podcast after the fact and we're no longer in lockdown, fingers crossed that that is the, the very, you know, near future, I think this still applies. So we're, we're experiencing sensory input all day long as parents. You know, we are cooking our kids meals. So we are, you know, smelling all of that stuff. We're smelling what we're cooking. We're smelling, you know, the diapers. If you've got kids in diapers, we're smelling the other bathroom situations. We are, you know, visually we are seeing a, a lot. We are seeing like the, the physical movement of our kids that is visually taxing. So like, you know, I don't know if your kids are like mine, but when they're wild and they're playing, they are like, it, visually, it's overwhelming. They're moving around. There's limbs everywhere. You know, they're wild. They're they're bouncing. They're sometimes literally vibrating with excitement. That's a lot, you know. And then there's you know the sounds that we hear. You know, we hear our phones don't stop, especially for those of us who are working from home. You know, the text pings or the email blings or whatever notification sounds you have. Social media, it never stops. And then there's this, you know, the next layer of sound, which is like whatever your kids are doing, the actual noise. So whether you've got kids who are especially verbal and having really like dialogue-y play or you have kids who you know engage in self-stimulatory behaviors whether that's you know making sounds and repetition or humming or whatever it is there's that layer then there's that next layer of sound which is like whatever else is on in the background so maybe the radio maybe you have music the news because you know the news like you can't escape the news right now um you know maybe your kids are on devices maybe they're watching YouTube videos. If your house is like mine, there are times in the day where, you know, there is more than one kid on a device watching something on YouTube. 
plus you're trying to watch something on TV. Let's say I'm trying to watch the news. I'm also trying to answer emails on my phone and I've got two kids sitting, you know, an arm's length away on the couch watching YouTube videos. Man, the sound input is next level. Okay. And you're layering, right? The whole idea is that all of these forms of input just layer, layer, layer. And what happens is at a certain point, we reach our tipping point, you know, in terms of our stress levels, we totally peak. We hit a point where we're no longer able to filter out all of those sensory variables. You know, the smells become overwhelming, the sights become overwhelming, the sound of our kids, the sound of the devices, you know, the fabrics, everything, all of our sensory systems become overwhelmed. And what happens is as our stress levels increase, our anxiety levels increase, our coping skills decrease. So where when you're regulated and you're calm, or at least like mostly calm, you can filter out that extra sensory input. You can still do what you need to do. As soon as your stress levels seem to increase, your coping mechanisms decrease. And what happens? That becomes the antecedent or the trigger for, you know, a mommy meltdown or a daddy meltdown or a caregiver meltdown. <laughs> so what happens is, you know, we might lose it or we might snap over something seemingly inconsequential, literally, you know, crying over spilt milk when it's not about the spilt milk. It's about the, the overall sensory input that is overwhelming our systems and our ability to think and process information and do all the things that we're doing right now in this moment. I think that the idea that sensory defensiveness is at least in part why parents have that tendency to sort of reach their tipping point is what really resonated with folks on social media because I think there is this tremendous, not I think, I know from experience and from working with you guys in the field, I know that there is so much guilt over those times where you flip your lid or you lose it or you reach your peak or whatever metaphor you like, you essentially, you know, freak out over something that you wish you hadn't freaked out over. So what happens is, you know, a small stressor happens and, you know, you, you manage it and you deal with it and you're calm and you're neutral and you do all of the things that you're meant to do and you strive to do as a parent, you know, you you do well, basically. You navigate it the way you'd want to. Then another small stressor, and then another small stressor, and another small stressor. And all the while, you're slowly building in your own escalation. And still, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of suppressing your overwhelm, and you're calling out your calm, and you're acting neutrally with your kiddos, and you are doing the best you can in the moment. And then what happens is, you know, you suppress, 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 and then at the end of the day, a lot of the time when you're depleted when you're you know you're tired you're over it and you have used all of your cognitive capacity and all of your coping skills to just you know make it through the day and then something happens and you just cannot do it anymore and you yell or you know you implement a harsh consequence like I don't know you remove something that you wish you hadn't removed you take away a toy you take away access you ground you punish whatever it is that you do once you are at that point where you can no longer regulate and you need to take immediate action in order to, you know, deal with the problem. And you're dealing with the problem from a place of, you know, reaction and not necessarily a place of responding to what is actually happening. So your trigger and your antecedent 
comes from, you know, so many variables. And, you know, the one thing that, that tips you over the edge is your kiddo's behavior. And it can be something insignificant, like, you know, your kiddo asking a question they've already asked and had the answer to, or putting their feet on you when, you know, you've asked them for a bit of space or whatever it is. So something that you would usually just redirect or usually be able to handle, you know, calmly and neutrally, you flip your lid and you lose it. And, you know, parents feel really guilty for that. And they think, oh God, I, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't lost my cool in that situation because, you know, as we all know, we want to save our big reactions and our big, you know, our big parenting, you know, mic drop moments for times that it really matters. You know, we want to save those big reactions for dangerous situations where we need immediate action. You know, we want to save our yelling for when we need to get that attention right away because there's imminent risk or something like that. And when we don't do that and we react and we yell and we do things that indicate, you know, that the problem is larger than it actually is. We send mixed messages to our kids about when they need to, you know, essentially we want our kids to know that when something happens that makes mom or dad react that big, it's a really big deal and they need to stop and look because there's imminent danger. Otherwise, you know, mom and dad come in more neutrally and, you know, with the time that it takes to work through the problem. So we're sending mixed messages. And I think the primary reason that that happens is that once we're triggered and we're no longer able to filter out, you know, the sensory stimulation that's overwhelming us, we go into fight or flight mode. And whatever tips us over the scale is oftentimes inconsequential. And, you know, like I said, sometimes it can be something small, like a small scale redirection that your kiddo might do all the time, but this one time just makes you lose it. Or, you know, other times it might be something inconsequential that's like an environmental um, variable that you can usually just block out but in this situation you can't and you lose it like for example your child is watching you know a youtube video while you know the oven fan is on and you're trying to read a recipe to make for dinner and you know you're also having a couple conversations on your phone through text with someone that's irritating you about something i don't know maybe your mother-in-law um and then you know your your daughter or your son turns up the youtube video because they want to hear it a little louder and that you know increase in volume just sets you over the edge and it's like it's the straw that broke the camel's back so you know you yell or you something right you you act in a way that is reactive um, and doesn't really indicate you know the the true level of of the issue here you know if your kiddo turns their volume up on the on their you know ipad or whatever they're using you know, the the sort of neutral or, you know, rational side of your brain would say, okay, so in a calm voice, just let them know that they're going to have to go ahead and turn that down. But when you're not able to access the rational part of your brain because you're in fight or flight, you know, you lose it, you yell, you, you essentially act in ways that aren't productive and don't help teach a replacement, but rather just sort of scare or, you know, coerce your kid into following directions. And I think... After having said all of that, you know, as I t take a breath and, and look at the clock and realize I've just spoken for almost 17 minutes um, on this, um, I think it's really important to say that we've all been there, you know, and I think that is why this was so, so overwhelming for parents to see on social media because they were like, whoa, you mean I'm not, I'm not just like a shitty person? You know, I'm not just like, Ugh, I'm not just like, I don't know, bad at dealing with whatever like no of course you're not you're not a bad person you're not a bad parent you're not bad at life you know you were just reacting to your environment and I think those who tend to 
be sensory defensive, tend to experience more sensory defensiveness, you know, sounds bother them more, smells bother them more, fabrics bother them more, you know, motion and visual stimulation bothers them more when they're escalated. And I don't think that there is a single person right now living on this planet in this global pandemic that we're in that is not more, you know, more escalated or more stressed than their normal baseline. So we're already operating from a point of stress. We're already extremely close to fight or flight in a lot of situations. So if you're noticing that your coping skills across the board are just not cutting it anymore, you know, recognize that your baseline now or your regular level of functioning is probably more heightened than it ever has been before. And number one, that's normal um, and universal, I think. And number two, that's okay. That just means that you need to be using, you know, strategies for managing your stress levels more proactively and possibly a little bit more heavily than you were before. Um, you know, if before the pandemic you were fairly regulated and, you know, able to manage your emotions and, you know, respond in a way that aligns with your values with your kids in most situations and you know you use certain strategies like let's say you cycled a few times a week or you did yoga once or twice a week or had a venting session with your best friend every other day or whatever it was recognize that now operating at almost what's like a new baseline for you which is more heightened you may need to lean into those strategies more i think if you are noticing that you're generally more sensitive to environmental stimulation, sensory input, then it could be for you an indicator that your anxiety levels are increasing. And I know at least for me, one of the first things that I notice when I start to become anxious before I notice absolutely anything else, before I have any, you know, anxious thoughts or racing thoughts, before there's any physical sensation of, you know, heart racing or, you know, flushness in my cheeks or anything like that, the very first thing I notice is a sensitivity to smell. And for me, that makes me think, okay, I think I need to use some strategies. If I'm, you know, I, I tend to be sensory sensitive anyway, and I tend to notice things in the environment that other people don't notice, just and it bothers me more, or sometimes I like it, depending on what, you know, the obviously the, the form of sensory input is. Um, but for me, that's a really good indicator. And I think when you are able to look at yourself and say, what are these sort of unconventional things about me that I notice indicate that I'm slowly, you know, increasing my levels of stress or anxiety, that's really helpful for you because that allows you to spot those really subtle signs of, you know, anxiety and stress. And it allows you to utilize strategies contingent on that in a way that ensures that you're not getting to that point of flipping your lid or losing it or, you know, freaking out over a, you know, environmental variable more than you have to. And I think it's important to say that no amount of coping strategies in the world is ever going to get you to a point where you don't experience intense emotions. And that's not the point. You want to experience intense, intense emotions. That's completely fine. But I think what you want to try to get ahead of is situations where you're experiencing these really high highs and these really low lows. And you're experiencing that, you know, frequently and quickly and in a way that interferes with life. I think the idea that we will never lose our cool at our kids is not realistic. But I think when you understand how the environmental variables or the sensory variables impact your ability to self-regulate, you are way better off as a parent. 
there's a couple of practical things to take away from this. So the first thing is if there is a lot of, you know, environmental, you know, sensory variables going on around you, identify what they are. Because a lot of the time we aren't, we aren't really awake to those things until they're bothering us. So, you know, become awake to those things, look around, do an environment scan, a little bit of mindfulness, look around, what do you see, hear, smell, touch, taste? And then what can you take out of the environment if it's not you know, if it's not serving you in that moment. And I think at the, at the beginning of this episode, I said not everyone is going to be universally a sensory seeker or a sensory avoider. Some of us are going to ebb and flow between the two, depending on kinds of input. You might really like, you know, input of touch. You might really like to explore fabrics and how things touch and get, you know, lots of deep pressure and have a lot of physical contact. But you might be an avoider when it comes to smells. Smells might trigger you. So be mindful of that as well. It's not necessarily as black and white as being always a seeker or always an avoider. So you've done an environmental scan, you know what's in the environment, and you can take out the things that aren't necessary. You know, if the TV's on and your phone's not on silent, so it's pinging away at you, you know, the oven fan is on and the door is open so you can hear the cars going by, before you know it, that's, you know, auditory overload. So what can you take out? What can you remove from the equation before you reach your tipping point? The other thing that's really important about all of this is knowing how to articulate your boundaries. And doing this with your kids is really important because one of the things that I hear most often is that I'm sensory defensive and my kids are total sensory seekers. Or if they're not sensory seekers, they put so much sensory like output or you know, they add such a layer of sensory overwhelm to the environment. You know, they ask a lot of questions. You know, they're loud. They have these repetitive noises or ways that they play. Um, you know, they're, they're physical. Their movement is wild and unpredictable and visually, you know, jarring. Um, you know, they play with toys that make sounds. They like their devices to be loud. They have, you know, toys that smell like... I don't know, scented markers. They have essentially kids are just, you know, a trigger in some situations for folks who are sensory defensive. So what do you do? Well, of course, you know, you love your kids. You want to support your kids. And at a certain point, you're going to have to, you know, modify the environment so that you can meet their needs while also meeting your needs. The first step is knowing your own boundaries and knowing what you need. It's okay to say that you are just touched out in this moment and you would rather not have, you know, a kid climbing all over you in this moment and that you will be available for that at another time when you are more ready to give that. That's okay. Knowing your boundaries is step one. And then the second part is articulating your boundaries. So Parents often say things like, you know, my kids love to cuddle all the time. They want constant affection. They're constantly crawling on me and touching me and playing with my hair. And the parents report, and I can totally empathize with this, they feel guilty about saying, you know, please don't touch me right now. Or please, you know, sit over there. Or like, for the love of God, just take your feet off me and stop bouncing your feet or whatever it is, right? So parents struggle with the level of touch and then they feel guilty about placing boundaries. So here's the thing. If we don't place boundaries and we just simply allow our kids to have all of their needs met non-contingently and they can, you know, climb all over us and do all of these things, what happens is we ultimately flip our lid over something inconsequential. So 
of course we want, you know, to honor our kids' needs and meet their needs in a sensory way and in, you know, a way that is, you know, nurtures the relationship and the connection, but we have to do that in acknowledgement of our own needs and boundaries as well, or else we end up living in this situation where, you know, we are leaning so hard on into giving our kids what they need that we're neglecting what we need and then we're having these big explosive reactions to our kids, which are actually not productive for the end goal, which is, you know, maintaining that nurturing relationship and connection and meeting their needs. So the thing that I always say, you know, to parents and frankly, to my friends who are parents is that it is not only okay to articulate your boundaries to your kids in a totally respectful way, but it's actually really good because it teaches your kids that self-advocacy will be respected. And I don't know about you, but I want my kids to know that if they have a boundary and they articulate that boundary, that it is a full stop, people will comply with that boundary. I don't want them to think that it's open to discussion or open to interpretation. If my kiddo has a boundary that they set, I want it to be honored by other people. And I want them to know the power of setting boundaries in relationships and not think that boundaries are up for debate. If you place a boundary, respect the boundary. So what does that mean? It means we have to model respectful ways that nurture the relationship that meet everyone's needs. So if, you know, my kiddo wanted to be cuddling up with me and I was feeling touched out and had too much of that sensory input in the day already or just didn't have capacity for it, I might say something like, mommy needs a little bit of space right now. Why don't you put your feet on me and I'll rub your feet that way I'm providing them with the sensory input they need, but I'm doing it on my terms. I can control the foot rub. You know, it's feet on me. It's not your whole body crawling all over me in an unpredictable way. And you know, that will meet both of our needs. Or, you know, I might not have capacity for that either. I might say, you know, mommy needs a little bit of time just to have some personal space. I feel like I need a bit of personal space. So why don't you go over there and you can sit there really close to me and I can still see you and we're close by each other, but we're just each going to have a bit of personal space. And then when I'm ready for a cuddle, I will come let you know. Okay, so the idea is not that we're telling our kids no all the time. It's just that we're letting them know that it's okay to set a boundary and then follow through on that boundary and that you're not in any way, you know, um, taking away from the relationship or the connection that you have by setting that boundary. And this goes, you know, this goes for touch because I think touch is, touch is really important, of course, for everyone, for relationships, but parents feel really guilty about, you know, saying, you know, in this moment, I don't have capacity for, you know, a really big bear hug right now. Or if I do, I'm basically phoning it in and faking it. Parents, on one hand, don't want to fake a hug. They want to really feel it and really enjoy it. On the other hand, they don't want to deny their kid a hug because they worry, you know, oh my goodness, what message is it sent? Is it sent? And while I totally get that, I think you can honor both needs and requests at the same time while also teaching, you know, that super valuable skill of setting and respecting boundaries and doing so in a way that is loving and compassionate and not, um, you know, punitive. You're not, the kiddo's not in trouble for asking for something that you're not able to give in this moment. It's just simply a fact that you don't have capacity for it. Um, the other thing that I think in terms of setting boundaries that I often hear about is, you know, Parents that say that their kids are always, you know, operating at like a volume level that just is triggering for them or use a certain voice or tonality that just like super triggers them and sends them over the edge when they're already stressed. And I think 
when it comes to boundaries for things like that, I think you're looking at phrases like, you know, you are using a level five volume right now. And in this room, while I'm reading or I'm relaxing or I'm cooking, it's really important for me that you are using a level three volume or lower. I can't focus. And if I can't focus, I can't do what I need to do. So while I want you to play and I want you to have so much fun, I need the volume to be a level three, a level two or a level one. And then, of course, you can have a conversation. Do you know what a level one volume is? Do you know what a level two? And all of this. And you're doing teaching throughout it. But ultimately, what you're doing is you're validating what they're doing and saying, listen, there's nothing wrong with having boisterous, loud play. It's totally fine. But in this environment, what I need right now to get what I need done is to place this boundary about the level of volume that's appropriate. And if your kiddo wants to have a level five volume, that's totally fine. Let them know where they can do that. So in this room, while I'm trying to send an email or talk to daddy or whatever it is, I need a level three or lower. If you want to have a level five volume, that's totally fine. Go to the backyard, go to the basement, go to your room, go over there, whatever it is that is the boundary that you're going to set. So to recap, sensory defensiveness is something that unites us as parents in a way that I never imagined. The response that I got from just one video and then that rolled out into like a whole series of videos on TikTok over sensory defensiveness illustrates that this is definitely going to be more than one podcast episode. I would love to know your feedback on this. You can, you know, slide into my DMs on Instagram at magminds or on any of the other social media channels you could find me on. I would love to talk about it. Um, I will unpack this more in a part two where we talk a little bit more about what it looks like practically speaking and how you can manage some of these overwhelming situations with coping mechanisms and other examples of how to set and follow through on boundaries. I hope that's helpful. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating and share, share, share. Until next time, stay well, stay grounded, and keep letting science drive your habits while you let the pursuit of wellness and balance steer you in the right direction.